Section 4 of The Philosophy of the Plan of Salvation by James Barr Walker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 4. Concerning what was necessary as the first step in the process of revelation. By the miracles of Egypt, the false views and corrupt habits of the Israelites were, for the time being, in a great measure removed. Previously they had believed in a plurality of gods, and although they remembered the God of Abraham, yet they had, as is evident from notices in the Bible, associated with his attribute of almighty power, the only attribute well understood by the patriarchs, many of the corrupt attributes of the Egyptian idols. Thus the idea of God was debased by having groveling and corrupt attributes superinduced upon it. By miraculous agency, these dishonorable views of the divine character were removed. Their minds were emptied of false impressions in order that they might be furnished with the true idea and the true attributes of the Supreme Being. But how could minds in the infancy of knowledge respecting God and human duty, having all they had previously learned removed, and being now about to take the first step in their progress, how could the first principles of divine knowledge be conveyed to such minds? One thing in the outset would evidently be necessary. Knowledge, as the mind is constituted, can be communicated in no other way than progressively. It would be necessary, therefore, that they should begin with the elementary principles, and proceed through all the stages of their education. The mind cannot receive at once all the parts of a system in religion, science, or any other department of human knowledge. One fact or idea must be predicated upon another, just as one stone rests upon another from the foundation to the top of the building. There are successive steps in the acquisition of knowledge, and every step in the mind's progress must be taken from advances already made. God has inwrought the law of progression into the nature of things, and observes it in his own works. From the springing of a blade to the formation of the mind, or of a world, everything goes forward by consecutive steps. It was necessary, therefore, in view of the established laws of the mind, that the knowledge of God and human duty should be imparted to the Israelites by successive communications, necessary that there should be a first step or primary principle for a starting point, and then a progression onward and upward to perfection. In accordance with these principles, God, in the introduction of the Mosaic dispensation, revealed only his essential existence to the Israelites. In Exodus 3, 13 and 14, it is stated that Moses inquired of God, quote, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say unto me what is his name, what shall I say unto them? And God said, I am the I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me to you. End quote. In the Hebrew text, the simple form of the verb is used, corresponding with the first-person present indicative of the English verb to be. Simply, I am, conveying no idea but that of personality and existence. What he was, besides his existence thus revealed, was afterwards to be learned. This was a revelation of divine being, 
a nucleus of essential deity as a foundation fact of the then new dispensation upon which god by future manifestations might engraft the attributes of his nature thus at the outset of the dispensation there was thrown into their minds a first truth god revealed his divine existence and the idea of god thus revealed was in their minds without any other attribute being connected with it than that of infinite power an attribute of the godhead which all men derive from the works of nature which was known to the patriarchs as belonging to the true god and which was now by the miracles manifesting supreme power appropriated to the i am jehovah the god of the israelites thus were this peculiar people carried back to the first principles of natural religion their mind disembarrassed from false notions previously entertained and the true idea of the supreme god and judge of men revealed by these providences they were prepared in a manner consistent with the nature of things and the nature of mind to receive a further revelation of the moral attributes of jehovah whom they now recognized as the supreme god chapter five concerning the necessity of affectionate obedience to god and the manner of producing that obedience in the hearts of the israelites the following principles in relation to the affections will be recognized by consciousness as true in the experience of every man as they lie at the foundation of the moral exercises of the soul and as they relate to the sources and central principles of all true religion it will be necessary for the reader to notice them in order that he may see their application in subsequent pages one the affections of the soul move in view of certain objects or in view of certain qualities believed to exist in those objects the affections never move in familiar words the heart never loves unless love be produced by seeing or by believing that we see some lovely and excellent qualities in the object when the soul believes those good qualities to be possessed by another and especially when they are exercised towards us the affections like a magnetized needle tremble with life and turn towards their object two the affections are not subject to the will footnote we state the facts in the case of which every man is conscious in his own experience without regard to the theories of sex in religion or philosophy and footnote neither our own will nor any other will can directly control them i cannot will to love a being who does not appear to me lovely and who does not exhibit the qualities adapted to move the affections nor can i by command or by any other effort of will cause another being to love me the affections are not subject to command you cannot force another to love or respect or even from the heart to obey such an attitude assumed to produce love would invariably produce disaffection rather than affection no one as a matter of fact thinks the affections subject to the will and therefore men never endeavor to obtain the affections of others solely by command but by exhibiting such a character and conferring such favors as they know are adapted to move the heart an effect could as easily exist without a cause as affection in the bosom of any human being which was not produced by goodness or excellencies seen or believed to exist 
in some other being. 3. The affections, although not governed by the will, do themselves greatly influence the will. All acts of will produced entirely by pure affection for another are disinterested. Cases of the affections influencing the will are common in the experience of every one. There is probably no one living who has not, at some period of his life, had affection for another, so that it gave more pleasure to please the object of his love than to please himself. Love for another always influences the will to act in such a way as will please the object loved. The individual loving acts in view of the desires of the loved object, and such acts are disinterested, not being done with any selfish end in view, but for the sake of another. So soon as the affections move towards an object, the will is proportionably influenced to please and benefit that object, or, if a superior being, to obey his will and secure his favor. 4. All happy obedience must arise from affection. Affectionate obedience blesses the spirit which yields it, if the conscience approve the object loved and obeyed while, on the contrary, no happiness can be experienced from obedience to any being that we do not love. To obey externally either God or a parent from no other than interested motives would be sin. The devil might be obeyed for the same reasons. Love must, therefore, constitute an essential element in all proper obedience to God. 5. When the affections of two beings are reciprocally fixed upon each other, they constitute a bond of union and sympathy peculiarly strong and tender, those things that affect the one affecting the other in proportion to the strength of affection existing between them. One conforms to the will of the other, not from a sense of obligation merely, but from choice, and the constitution of the soul is such that the sweetest enjoyment of which it is capable arises from the exercise of reciprocal affection. 6. When the circumstances of an individual are such that he is exposed to constant suffering and great danger, the more afflictive his situation, the more grateful love will he feel for affection and benefits received under such circumstances. If his circumstances were such that he could not relieve himself, and such that he must suffer greatly or perish, and, while in this condition, if another, moved by benevolent regard for him, should come to aid and save him, his affection for his deliverer would be increased by a sense of the danger from which he was rescued. 7. It is an admitted principle that protracted and close attention always fixes the fact attended to deeply in the memory. And the longer and more intensely the mind attends to any subject, other subjects proportionably lose their power to interest. The same is true in relation to the affections. The longer and more intensely we contemplate an object in that relation which is adapted to draw out the affections, the more deeply will the impression be made upon the heart, as well as upon the memory. The most favorable circumstances possible to fix an impression deeply upon the heart and memory are, first, that there should be protracted and earnest attention, and second, that at the same time that the impression is made, the emotions of the soul should be alive with excitement. Without these, an impression made upon the heart and the memory would be slight and easily effaced, 
while on the contrary an impression made during intense attention and excited feeling will be engraved as with a pen of steel upon the tablets of the soul now with these principles in mind mark the means used to fix the attention and to excite the susceptibilities of the israelites and while in that state of attention and excitement to draw their affections to god the children of israel were suffering the most grievous bondage which had arrived at almost an intolerable degree of cruelty and injustice just at this crisis the god of their fathers appears as their deliverer and moses is commissioned as his prophet when the people are convened and their minds aroused by the hopes of deliverance their attention is turned to two parties one pharaoh their oppressor and the slayer of their firstborn and the other the god of abraham who now appeared as their deliverer espousing their cause and condescending personally to oppose himself to their oppressor then a scene ensues adapted in all its circumstances to make a deep and enduring impression upon the memory and their heart the god of abraham seems by his judgments to have forced the oppressor to relent and to let the people go at this point hope and encouragement predominate in their minds now their oppressor's heart is hardened and he renews his cruelty but while their hopes are sinking they are again revived and strengthened by finding that god continues to use means to induce pharaoh to release the captives thus for a considerable length of time all the powers of excitability in their nature are aroused to activity towards that being who had so graciously interposed in their behalf they felt emotions of hope gratitude love and admiration towards their oppressor feelings of an opposite character must have been engendered and this state of excited suspense the emotions vacillating between love and hatred hope and fear was continued until the impression became fixed deep in their souls keeping in mind the fact that the more we need a benefactor and feel that need the stronger will be our feelings of gratitude and love for the being who interposes on our behalf notice further when through the interposition of the almighty the israelites were delivered and had advanced as far as the red sea another appeal was made to their affections which was most thrilling and adapted to call by one grand interposition all their powers of gratitude and love into immediate and full exercise the army of the israelites lay encamped on the margin of the red sea when suddenly they were surprised by the approaching host of pharaoh before them was the sea and behind them an advancing hostile army if they went forward they would find death in the waves if they returned backward it would be to meet the swords of their pursuers a rescue by earthly means from death or bondage more severe than they had ever borne was impossible just at this crisis of extremity jehovah appears as their deliverer the bosom of the pathless sea is cleft by the power of god the stricken waters recoil upon themselves on either side the israelites pass over in safety the egyptian host enter and are overwhelmed in the waters now it may be affirmed without qualification that in view of the nature and circumstances of the israelites no combination of means not including the self-sacrifice of the benefactor himself 
could be so well adapted to elicit and absorb all the affections of the soul as this wonderful series of events that this result was accomplished by these means is authenticated by the history given in the bible when the people were thus delivered they stood upon the other side of the sea and their affections in answer to the call which god had made upon them gushed forth in thanksgiving and praise here the response of their hearts and their allusion to the cause which produced that response quote, o sing unto the lord for he hath triumphed gloriously the horse and his rider he hath thrown into the sea the lord is my strength and song and he is become my salvation he is my god and i will prepare him a habitation my father's god and i will exalt him End quote. exodus 15 1 and 2 etc thus was the attention of the whole nation turned to the true god an impression of his goodness was fixed deeply in their memory and their affections were drawn out and fastened upon the true object of worship now this as was shown in the commencement of the chapter was necessary before they could offer worship either honourable or acceptable to god the end was accomplished by means adapted to the nature of the human soul and to the circumstances of the israelites and by means which no being in the universe but the maker of the soul could use the demonstration is therefore perfect that the scripture narrative is true and that no other narrative differing materially from this in its principles could be true end of section four